All right, then we'll start in three, two, one, if that's okay, yeah? Thanks a million. Karen and Sive. And Dave. Hello and welcome back to Rupture Radio. I'm Paul Murphy and I'll be your host today. It's been a while since we've had one of these um, panel episodes. We've been focusing a lot on our new At The Roots interview series, but I, and I presume all of our panellists, are very glad to be back for a special May Day episode to celebrate International Workers' Day with regular panellist Dave Murphy. Hey, Paul. He supports some obscure football team. What football team is that, Dave? Sheffield Wednesday. Pretty obscure. Our two special guests, firstly, people before profit activists recently photographed and videoed, being dragged by Gardy from the Debenhams picket. Thanks for joining us, Sive. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, what obscure football team do you support? Uh, Nottingham Forest. Also obscure. And last <laughs> but not least, uh, we're genuinely very delighted to be joined by one of the famous Dunstores anti-apartheid strikers, Karen Gearan. Thanks very much. Do Paul. you support any obscure football team, Karen? Not the, obscure, no. What, do you support a regular football team? <laughs> one of the non-obscure ones? <laughs> Liverpool. Liverpool, that's, that's the non-obscure category. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's great to have you, Karen. Um, so later on, we want to get on to the more recent events with Debenhams workers and other big news uh, of the week. But first of all, Karen, um, given that it's May Day, I thought it'd be really interesting to look back at uh, your own experience with the, I mean, really historic, world-renowned uh, anti-apartheid strike of Dunstores workers almost 40 years ago now in, oh. in 1984. Sorry to, to give it away. <laughs> Could you tell us a little bit about the strike and how it started and what happened and so on? Yeah, 40 years ago, it sounds... It, it was a lifetime ago. Um, I suppose our strike started in uh, Dunstores and Henry Street. Uh, we were given a union instruction not to handle apartheid South African produce. And the reason we were given that instruction was because there was a big movement uh, by workers in South Africa to ask the rest of the world to isolate, boycott the goods and isolate the country so that the apartheid system could be resolved internally. And that apartheid system was whereby... Um, if you were black, you basically had no rights at all. Um, you were forced to live in shanty towns. You had to have a pass to get in and out of them. It was so extreme that, I mean, a bench was for white people only, toilets for white people only. So black people were beginning to get organised and, and really raise the international profile of the apartheid system. It was probably the only country in the world, by law, you were destined by the colour of your skin. So that basically meant that if you were born black in that country, you had zero opportunity of going on further or getting decent jobs or a decent living. In actual fact, you were living in slum conditions. Um, so that message started to resonate throughout the world. And our union, which was IDATO at the time, which is now mandate, um, passed a motion at their Congress and basically um, asked, instructed the rest of the members not to handle South African produce. And interestingly enough, at the time, the government, most of the politicians were members of the Irish anti-apartheid movement, mm. which is very interesting when you think of it. So we got the instruction in, in Henry Street uh, a few months later. And 
at the time I was, well, I was shop steward. We knew very little about South Africa and apartheid. But what we did know about was how badly workers were being treated. And in our particular store ourselves, we were treated incredibly badly by management. Um, in even to the extreme of toilet breaks, you were allowed two toilet breaks uh, twice a day and you had eight minutes to get to from the basement upstairs, go to the bathroom, come down. In sounds like Amazon today. It sounds very much like Amazon today. And in actual fact, male members uh, of staff, managers would actually come up and knock on the bathroom door to see what you're doing. So there was all that going on and done. So we were at a stage where we were really, really just so fed up with trying to get better working conditions that this instruction came and it was like the the straw that broke the camel's back. We had had enough and we were going to follow this instruction. As a result of that, management took a very hard line to it and eventually suspended Mary Manning for refusing to handle the goods. And the strike started. That was the 19th of July, 1984. And at the beginning of the strike, we knew very little about South Africa, but a really incredible man called Nimrod Sajaka was in Ireland at the time. He was uh, the Red Cross in, uh, uh, was housing him in Harold's Cross. And he was an incredible socialist. Uh, he would have been a member of the militant tendency. And he was very involved in the Labour youth, which was very militant at the time and part of the militant tendency. He started coming down to the picket line and starting to educate us about what was going on in, in South Africa. And so from that union instruction, we started to change and develop. And as a result of that, even if we had have been instructed not to go back and handle the produce, we wouldn't have done it. Mm-hmm. It became much more for us. People were losing their lives. They were dying in South Africa because of a lack of rights and freedoms. The most that could happen to us was that we would lose our jobs. And I mean, as the strike went on, in the beginning, there was very little support for the strike. Uh, people didn't know what it was about. In the 80s, huge recession, lots mm-hmm. of unemployment, lots of industrial disputes. You just had the bin men dispute just before our strike. You know, so there was lots and lots going on. Um, so it took a long time for us to get to people to know what the strike was about. And as it turned out, we met Bishop Desmond Tutu in uh, the December of 1984. And that changed the perception of the strike because people were now seeing it as a, as a bigger issue. It wasn't just an industrial dispute. Mm-hmm. It was something much more than that. And we kept going, kept going with the strike. And we were, there was no way that any of the Labour Relations Commission could resolve the strike because it was much more than that, even though They made pathetic attempts to do so. Mm -hmm. And even at one stage instructed us to go back. We even had Kader Asmal, who was the leader of the Irish anti-apartheid movement, a lecturer in Trinity College and a South African himself, telling us we had made our point to go back. We had every priest in the country standing at the pulpit, pulpit on a Sunday saying support done stores. They're good people and we should they should boycott the strike. So we were up against the church, we were up mm-hmm. against the state, we were up against um, some of the trade union movement and the police as well. I mean, you know, I saw what happened over the last week or so and we would have suffered the same thing. Ours was probably more violent um, than the scenes that we saw even in Henry Street mm-hmm. uh, last week. 
uh, one of the women, Alma, nearly got her finger ripped off. Tommy was severely beaten. Tommy was the only man on strike mm -hmm. and he was badly beaten by the police um, because he was the only man. Yeah. Um, and at one stage, there were so many guards around Henry Street that they were shoulder to shoulder on all the doors, all the entrances and all the exits. But we kept going because we knew that this fight was too important to walk away from. And as part of the struggle, we were invited over to South Africa by Bishop Tutu to see for ourselves what was actually going on there, to testify, to bear witness to the horrendous regime that the apartheid. And when we arrived over in Yansmuth Airport, which is now called, I think, Oliver Tambo Airport, uh, we were getting out of the plane and there was a line of soldiers on each side. And we genuinely thought that this is just normal. It's South Africa. Mm -hmm. It's whatever. There was actually somebody on the plane that said, oh, I think I'm a journalist. It might be for me. It wasn't. It was for the Dunstore strikers. Mm -hmm. There were eight strikers and two supporters. We were held under armed guard for eight hours with 32 armed soldiers who were playing with the safety catch of their guns. It was terrifying. To say terrifying is an understatement because there were loads of stories going around. People had disappeared. People had gone into the country to witness things and they had just disappeared. And we thought we were going to be one of those disappeared. Eventually, because there was such an outcry of where we were. And remember, there was no mobile phones back then. Yeah. So the only way we could contact people was one of our party was a British citizen. And it was through the British embassy that we could contact people. Outside of, our, outside of South Africa and tell them we're actually being held. So there was a big um, response to that. And eventually, after eight hours, the South African authorities sent us home and banned us from ever coming back to South Africa. And as we were walking out towards the plane, we were getting up the steps and Mary Manning was just behind me and I got up to the top of the steps and I turned around and I put my fist up and I shouted, we'll be back when South Africa is free. And you were. Mary pushed me into the plane and <laughs> the language she used was <laughs> class, to say the least. Uh, and it began with an F and there was a couple of B's in there. And yeah, so eventually we got back to London Heathrow. And when we arrived in London, we were told by the captain that everybody was to remain in their seats and that the plane was being boarded by the police. And we thought we're going to be thrown out of England now as well. Mm -hmm. Now, we had been gone from a Monday morning. We had left Ireland Monday morning at one o'clock. This was now Wednesday morning at 7.30 in the morning. So that's how long we had been gone. Yeah. And people weren't 100% sure where we actually were because we were getting false reports from South Africa. Some reports were saying that we were actually put in prison. Other reports were saying we were back home. So they were or on the way back home. So when the police uh, came on board, they asked everybody to leave the plane except for the 10 passengers that were sitting down the back of the plane, which was ourselves. And what the police were actually there to do was escort us to an international world press conference. Uh -huh. Can you imagine? <laughs> like ordinary workers. And what age were you all at the time? Liar truth. <laughs> Soon she's at 40 years. I was 20. So, wow. And you were the shop steward at 20. Um, I was the shop steward, yeah. Um, I, when we were arrested in South Africa, I was 21. We just, I yeah. just had my 21st there at Christmas. So the average, I mean, Liz, who is the youngest of the strikers, was 17. Mm -hmm. And the eldest was kind of Teresa. 
was who was 24. So that was the age range of us on, on the picket line. And of course, that was used against us as well. That was like sort of, you know, uh, they're only kids. They've been, you know, directed used. by, yeah, they're okay. used by political parties. They're, you know, all of the above. Mm-hmm. And, and that was really only to put us down and, you know, to try and, and, and make what we were doing less important because of yeah. our age or because of our knowledge or lack of, you know. But eventually, I mean, things did really move on um, and things progressed. And, and we stood firm and we forced the Irish government to change policy in relation to mm-hmm. South Africa. It was the first Western country in the entire world to ban South African produce. You know, can you imagine? Like that started, thank you, uh, that started with, you know, a motion that was passed on to the workers that the mm-hmm. workers followed and the government was forced to change. Yeah, it's quite incredible. It, it is. Yeah, it is. It is and it's interesting because it's also like, it precisely shows that like, you know, you as workers, you're not just concerned about your own conditions and trade unions aren't just concerned about your own conditions. You're concerned about the oppression in the world that exists. And then it's interesting what you were saying, how the two kind of came together because it made sense for you to take action in solidarity with the experience of, you know, the oppressed black people in South Africa because of what you were facing yourselves Absolutely. in, in Dunn's stores. That's, uh, Absolutely. I mean, if you look at it, you know, I mean, when you look at what has happened in Ireland over the last year, it's been ordinary people that have, you know, sort of done what they're supposed to do. They've tried to stop the virus from spreading. Ordinary people, everyday workers, right? And they're the ones that get punished for it. And then you have a look at what's happening. You have Debenhams, prime example of companies wanting to have an excuse to get out of the country and close up and nothing to stop them. I mean, when our strike started, we could have political strikes in Ireland because the law allowed it. Mm-hmm. We could have strikes in solidarity of other organisations. Or it, it, it'd be illegal places. today, like, yeah. Today it's illegal. Yeah. You know, you have the Irish government and the guards banning a protest yesterday. Oh, yeah, yeah. disgraceful. I mean, banning a protest. But I mean, if you look at like when the strike finished and we went back to work, not everybody went back to work because it was a really difficult decision. It started on the 19th of July, 1984. And it Wait, when did it finish? It started in. Yeah. Uh-huh. Wow. And we were only on strike pay at the time. We got £21 a week. What we would have been earning would be around £95 up to 110 Pounds per week. So that's like an eighty percent pay cut. <laughs> yeah, during the strike there was an increase of two pounds, which was great. Bonnie lost her house. Jesus, my mom. I think you know my mom a bit, Kira. She's um, written a bit about you guys, but she was saying that like you know there was yeah. women who had kids and stuff who were like trying to feed their kids. Like it's actually insane, and it's funny as well because I've been really involved with the Debenhams workers' strike over the last year. Um, I was like. Um, I was there the other night when everything happened and I was one of the people who helped occupy Henry Street back in September. And uh, like one of the things, Mandate won't give them strike pay. And that's because, but in a way, it's kind of a blessing. Not that Mandate won't give them strike pay, but um, the fact that they're on the PUP has allowed them to continue that strike in a really big way, which is, I think, why it's really important and vital for us to fight 
against any cuts to PUP because people aren't back at work yet. People are still out. But um, yeah, no, the PUP, I think it's disgraceful that you guys went from 90 to 100 euro or pounds, should I say, to 21. Yeah. And your insane. mom was with Tracy Ryan. They wrote the play about the strike. Oh, yeah? Yeah. yeah my, so my mom's, yeah, my mom's, her name's Kira Garrity. She's a, a, she's an author. She's an Irish author. So she, I, she's been in she's That's she's mad, i think she's so obsessed yeah mad. she's so obsessed with the debenhams and oh, no, sorry not Debenhams. she's so obsessed with the dunn story strikers she still doesn't shop the dunn <laughs> she still thinks you're on strike <laughs> i come home and i got her like um some dunn stories own brand bread and she's like is that from dunn stories did you pass the picket and i was like it's no not picket. a strike no st bernard's clothes <laughs> <laughs> St. Bernard is a breed of dog. <laughs> she's 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 yeah, militant. Yeah. Like she'll she'll never <laughs> she'll never shop in those stores again. <laughs> That's really funny because like I I can't believe that you're Kira's daughter. Jesus. Yeah. yeah, it was it's it's a funny one. I can't wait to tell her I met you here. It's mad. I'll text her now in a minute and say, Do you yeah. daughter? <laughs> It just dawned on me that the, the strike started on my first birthday, the 19th of July, 1984. Oh. And you're looking at me now going, he looks very old. Like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Looking at saying, what team does he support? Were they even alive in 1984? <laughs> well, one thing that, that struck me when, when you were speaking, um, and also when I was just kind of rereading about this, was was the fact that, um, like, Katarazmal, so the, you know, leader of the anti-apartheid movement came out and encouraged you to go back to work saying you'd done your job. And I think More similarly at a certain us. Yeah, okay. And and similarly throw in the um the union leadership at a certain point also had a similar position, if that's correct. And I think has recently kind of said or has has noted that like that was wrong and yous were were right. How, how did that happen and what kind of pressures were at play there? Okay, I suppose the first thing in relation to Kadarazmal, um he told us and tried to force the union to to finish the strike that we had made a point, we'd raised the profile and it was now time for us to go back to work. He was told in no uncertain terms that he should go away, basically. And he very seldom came down to the picket line after that, unless it was for a press picture. Yeah. I mean, you have what to, was that coming from? Oh, like that was coming from a political remember, logic or? Cadder was a lecturer in Trinity. He was a wise wine and cheese guy. We were yeah, okay. a beer and crisp person. Uh-huh. You know, now I happen to love wine and cheese, but to, you know, the, <laughs> sure you can have them all. You can have them all, and he was losing control. When we started the strike, there were two branches of the Irish anti-apartheid movement. When we finished the strike, there were about thirty to thirty-four support groups for the Dunstore strikers, which turned into anti-apartheid groups. Okay. Yeah. So his and it became a workers' thing, kind of like. Absolutely, yeah. his control had. He was doing the wine and cheese with the politicians, with the Garfield mm-hmm. girls, the lobbying, with the, kind of, all yeah. of that sort of thing. Um, he wasn't on the ground looking at what other things could be done. Okay. Um, in relation to uh, to Idatu, um, John Mitchell gave an interview to um, a journalist called Jenny McGeever. Um, none of you would remember her, but she would have been a journalist that got sacked from RT for breaching Section 33, which was, um, or Section 31, which was yeah. the act that you couldn't have anybody from Sinn Féin. But Jenny was a very good supporter of our strike. Um, and she did an article with uh, John Mitchell 
Um, and she actually, it was very interesting the way she did it because she actually taped every question and every answer and she wrote exactly as she taped. Mm-hmm. So it was literally and transcript. Yeah, it was transcript. And he basically said, yes, it is time for the strike to be over. Um, and he would have been probably under huge pressure from the executive. Mm-hmm. John was a political animal himself. Mm-hmm. And was, you know, history will tell that in future years he tried to set up his own political party, um, which didn't work. Um, so he was looking at a bigger picture for him. And he, mm-hmm. I think, in his head, <laughs> brought it as far as he could break it. And then it was yeah. up. And I mean, they lifted the picket um, off Dunstores and Henry Street as a goodwill gesture. And what they held over our head was you either lift the picket or we take away your money. And we had no money. Mm-hmm. Um, Teresa had just had a baby. Bonnie had lost her house. She had to pay rent in another thing. So we were broke. Yeah. So we, we transferred the picket then to the doll, um, oh, where okay. we picketed the doll every two days a week. And what was the consequences for you all of, you know, being so in the public limelight in this struggle, which the whole establishment was opposed yeah. to? Was after it ended... Did, did you and the others suffer consequences? Oh, absolutely, without a shadow of a doubt. Um, I mean, we went back to work, seven of the ten went back to work. Um, okay. And to get us back to work, there was about three or four different votes uh, because the union were putting on fierce pressure. And there were a couple of the women that really did need to go back to work because they wouldn't have gotten a job anywhere else. They mm-hmm. wanted to move on with their lives. They wanted to get married. They wanted to have children. Mm-hmm. You know, we had spent three years fighting this because you know, it was time to move on and there were no other jobs there. Myself and Mary were both offered management uh, in Duns when we came back. <laughs> Way! <laughs> Such a privilege. No. But um, Mary was emigrating, so she was basically there just to save money, to get enough money to go to Australia. I didn't have that option. So 13 uh-huh. months later, I was sacked. Um, I won my own fair dismissal case, but it wasn't worth paper was written on I couldn't yeah. get a job anywhere um, right. so I was effectively blacklisted so um, eventually then I left Dublin and moved to Kerry and I've been here ever since I work in community development organisations uh, Kerry travellers um, long term unemployed people um, and carers that has been kind of the main jobs that I do um, but yeah I mean it's only since Sive's mother and Tracy Ryan wrote the book that we started getting any real credit for the strike. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's very interesting now when I meet people, there must have been thousands on the picket line when I wasn't there because everybody <laughs> seems to be on the picket line. <laughs> don't start in any from the GPO. <laughs> After he's got deported from um, South Africa, did like uh, I think some some I know when you were invited with Nelson Mandela for a dinner or something in. 90s or something? When he came over here, he came to Ireland. He was one of the first countries that he came to. And um, he was getting the freedom of the city and the big dignitaries and all that. And he invited us. We went to, to dinner with him and a lot of other people. And did well. you ever get to go back over? We did. We were I hear there's, there, there, there's a street funeral. named after people or something. Is there, there? there seemingly <laughs> is a street named after Mary Manning. Um, but we ha- we never found it. We weren't able to find it. Nobody's been able to find it. 
And it's supposed good, to get, get it on Google Street Maps. Uh, yeah, <laughs> drive like around later yeah, on. yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, we we uh, when Nelson Mandela died, we were invited to actually represent Ireland, um, along with Michael D and the other fellow. I can't think of his name. Okay, which is kind of an indication of how, how like in decades later the whole narrative changes, and now you're recognised. Yeah, I mean, when when it's done and over, now they're happy to say, "Oh, it was great what you did," but at the time, everybody was on that picket line, and I can absolutely tell you now they weren't. Yeah, they really, really weren't. The only time that the picket line really, really started to take effect was we say January, February, nineteen eighty-five, where we had already been six or seven months. And there was a, a, a movement going towards sanctions in, in the world. Uh-huh. So that's when people started focusing on our strike. And now it's like we were some sort of heroes. And, you know, when I show people, you know, photographs of what happened in Debenhams last week and photos of us, because they think that, you know, for some reason, the Dunstore strike just was there. It happened. And this wonderful thing happened after. It wasn't. We had plastic bags inside our shoes because we couldn't, you know, we couldn't buy new shoes, right? You know, the Kylemore, I don't know if you, you're probably all too... The restaurants across the road? The Kylemore down Henry Street. They used to give us free tea and coffee. There was a bakery that used to give us some cake sometimes because we were, we were in, and remember all of our families are working class families. You know, they would be getting it's just funny. I was just going to say it's funny the way you say that because that kind of solidarity that you see on the picket line is indicative to pretty much every picket line I've mm. been on. Not that I've been on like hundreds, but I've been on you know like ten mm. or so. And I mean, the Debenhams one is the one I've been on the longest. I started picketing with them at the beginning, and I've become really good friends with the likes of Jane Crow and stuff, who's a shop steward in Carmel. But um, every I used to do night shifts over the summer before I started working again, and uh, I do from you know, midnight till 6am on the picket because it was 24 hour one. And every morning at about 4 or 5am, the guy with the bread would come in and he'd leave yeah. us bread. The guy with the newspapers would come in yeah. and he'd leave us newspapers. The Aldi staff security would rock around and check on us. You know, the guys who do the security in the in the shopping centre would ask us when we need to, you know, go use the toilet, they'll let us in. So it's like that kind of solidarity, it's like exactly it what you're saying yeah. there. And it, it never changes, yep. you know what I mean? It's one of those things that I've seen on every single picket yeah. line. It's just something workers recognise each other. Because they know yeah. that they're all in the same boat and that it's mm. you, Debenhams, this week. It could be another company next week, and which it will be, without shadow of doubt. Yeah. Um, I mean, what's happening with Debenhams is, like Debenhams, the workers were saying, like Debenhams was the first to go. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? It was one of the first shops to be hit at the beginning of the pandemic. But as we've seen, as this pandemic continues, like retail is just getting decimated. We've seen Carphone Warehouse, Marks and Spencers, like Monsoon, all these big brands are just going. And, um, you know, that's why, like what the Debenhams workers have been saying since the beginning, like they're fighting, not just they're fighting for their fair redundancy, their two plus two. And they're fighting for the Duffy Cattle. But the, the other thing they're fighting for is a Duffy Cattle report. And it's that's like really central to their like aims is that it's not just for them it's for all workers it's for the people who come after them because if we don't get this kind of legislation passed this is just going to happen again and again because i think i was carmel was saying to rte the other day we also had a press conference not a worldwide one but (laughs) (laughs) just a little one i had paul was there but um it was carmel was saying to rte like um you know i can't remember what i was saying (laughs) 
it, it was yeah Carmel what was she saying she was very powerful at the press conference um Oh my god! So powerful you can't that, uh, remember. <laughs> so powerful I can't remember. No, I just I lost what I was saying there. But um, yeah, she was just like you know. Oh yeah, she was like you know when we, when Cleary's happened, they said this can never happen mm-hmm. again, and it will never happen again. And she was saying like she said to me personally, she was like, I was so shocked when they did that to us when we got that email because I was sure like I saw Cleary's happen, mm-hmm. and I was sure it just wouldn't happen again. And then as the strike continued, we realized that none of that legislation had been passed, that this can happen again. And if nothing gets done this time with Debenhams, mm-hmm. it's just going to happen again yeah. in three years. Yeah. It's going to happen again tomorrow because yeah. it's happening every day on the high street yeah. at the moment. Yeah. No, you know, in, in three years time that they're going to that we're going to be in a situation and people are going to be saying, well, if you've done what you need to do after Debenhams, yeah. then um, we wouldn't be here. Yeah. And like, that's just it, because like they write the laws in the interests of the Debenhams and the KPMGs yeah. and so on and not the not the workers. But, but like, isn't it not really Pivotal, pivotal moment right now right so we're on the verge now of like everything's shut down and everything is going to open back up we've had a wave of job losses already but like you're going to see between now and christmas as things open back up and then more businesses fail and retail closes more they're going to have like a, a further massacre in terms of like retail jobs so like getting the duffy cattle report in like as soon as possible like it suits like the government and big business that it's like we will do it and it's delayed and it happens like a year or 18 months down the line when, like, like that lack of legislation yeah. is the reason that the Irish Debenhams closed first. Because in 2016, that's the company took out a huge 200 million loan and they made the two guarantors of that loan, the Denmark Debenhams and the Irish Debenhams. And after four weeks, they took Denmark off the guarantorship, which if I was buying a car, I couldn't just change who the guarantor on my loan was. Like it would have to, like, you can't do that. Only companies can do that apparently. But uh, like it was obviously orchestrated because Ireland has terrible protection for workers and they knew if they did an insolvency in Ireland a tactical one as well that they wouldn't have to pay out to workers and that's why they chose to do it in Ireland do you know what I mean like it's been planned since like 2016 or 2018 yeah there's there's a really good bill um which is kind of spearheaded by Mick Barry from Solidarity and the Socialist Party but which is you know supported obviously by Solidarity and PBP um, which we're going to introduce, it'll be, what, in two weeks' time? Um, which it, It's kind of effectively being dubbed the Debenhams Bill, and which would, you know, address this issue to mean that in three years' time, we're not saying, oh, if only we did Debenhams. And, I mean, the, the mm. central thing that it would do is that it would make an unpaid collectively collective redundancy agreement into a debt um, in the eyes of the law, and therefore it gets, like, ranked um, and the workers get paid, as opposed to, at the moment, basically what happens is that, like, like they pay off everybody else and then the workers are at the bottom, mm. and then in this tactical redundancy left. situation, the workers don't get anything at the end of it. And, and um, if you look at it, I mean, you know, one of the most shocking things about Debenhams at the moment is the lack of a voice from the Irish Congress of Trade Union. I mean, mm. zero, nothing, nada. Yeah, you know, they wish it would go away. Uh, I, I just, I think, find it I think it's, I think it's kind of when you were talking about your own experience on the picket lines, like for done stories for those three years or two and a half years. Um, I thought like there's, a, I know like the strikes are different and whatnot, but um, you know, it's majority women. It's been going on a really long time. All these things are like quite similar as well. But uh, the way in which the trade unions respond as well have also been similar and it kind of shows that like you for most of most of the time the membership of trade unions are miles ahead of the leadership and you know because like i know for i know like i know jane said it now so i'll say it but like 
the like mandate weren't very pro the workers going a pick starting a picket they weren't very supportive throughout they haven't really come down all these kind of things so like they organized that really terrible deal back in September between KPMG without telling any without inviting the shop stewards into the discussions without informing the shop stewards so like similar like with you guys it's always like the membership are you know million miles ahead of the um of the union leadership same in the government usually the citizens are usually miles and miles ahead of like I think with our strike it was slightly different I think Mm -hmm. that there were a number of very 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 good union officials involved in that um I think when they introduced the boycott they never Mm. thought it would get to a situation where there would be a picket line somewhere Mm -hmm. they thought Mm. it would be tokenism all Mm. of that sort of thing so there was an unexpected outcome to it we had one of the best union officials i've ever met in my life a man called brendan archibald i'm not sure if Uh, you've heard him okay yeah our new brother yeah phenomenal man i mean absolutely Mm. so we were very very lucky and i think he probably shielded us from a lot of the crap that was going on in the trade union movement about mm. the strike. Um, in relation to ICTU at the time, because the law has changed since 1991 um, in the Industrial Relations Act, before ICTU would issue an all-out picket, which meant no union member, no matter what the union was, could pass that picket. That doesn't happen anymore because of the legislation. So you've got the likes of the Duffy Cahill report not happening. You've got that disastrous 1991 Industrial Relations Act. And you've Mm. got the trade union movement sitting down and going into partnership with government, which some of them have just renewed three or four months ago. Going into a partnership with the government that destroyed this country and billions bailing out the bankers. The madness of it. But like, there doesn't have to be a moment now, like where it's like I, I know, like a lot of times, like you'll raise a criticism and they'll say, "Oh, the Industrial Relations Act." But like, haven't we not reached a point now, like where it's like, "Well, let's do something about the Industrial Relations Act." Like, like the t- like it effect like it it stops any like effective picketing or secondary picketing or sport picketing. So like, well, like I think like it can be handy for like some of like the ICTU tops to say, "Oh, the Industrial Relations Act bounds our like binds our hands," like. Like how long are you gonna just keep saying that for without without trying to do something in relation to it? Like, um, and like I saw for instance the other day, it kind of reminded me about um the anti-apartheid campaign leader you were talking about earlier, Karen. Um, so, <laughs> so um, people would have seen the Citizens Assembly reported that like, uh, we should remove the, you know, the the women in the home clause mm-hmm. from the constitution, and mm-hmm. I saw Patricia King tweeting about it, saying this is a great advancement, and okay, it is a great advancement that's that's taken out of the constitution, but uh, she was like an advancement for working women, and I was like, there's like working women down picketing on like Henry Street that if you even lifted your little finger to try and mobilise some of the union, like the power of the union, would be a major advancement for working women, and like. You know, like it's like on the one hand, like this legislative change that they're looking at versus like the actual practical, like workers out, like fighting for their rights. And like, Mm. it's like one is a major achievement and you don't go and help, help the other one. Well, even on the industrial relations stuff, I mean, people will have seen the ESB technicians strike, which is happening at the moment, which I was down in the picket line yesterday. Yeah, it was yesterday. And it's very, I mean, fundamentally it's about outsourcing um, of huge amounts of work. Um, and the running down of ESB mm. networks at a time 
when from the point of view of climate change, ESB networks should be massively expanded, massive more public investment. We need to like electrify much more of the economy. We need much more of these workers. Um, but then linked to it is a is effectively a union recognition issue, whereby at least 500 of 1,250 workers have moved to the IWU and the company is simply refusing to deal with them. And not just that, they're also now have begun court proceedings to try and bankrupt um, the union, saying it's illegal picketing, uh, etc. So, like, yeah, we need to address all of that. That is another piece of legislation to to, pl- to point to. I do think that it's really important. If you look at the Debenhams workers, there's a thousand of them, right? Mm-hmm. Or more, you know, close enough to it. Yep. They're all members of a trade union, Okay. They need to make sure that when this dispute is over or resolved, that they do not leave that trade union. 100%. That they stay in that union and they start changing it from within. Because, you know, like I'm very involved in the picket line here in Tralee, as most of you know. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I mean, some of those people, including the shop stewards, didn't even know that there were supposed to be branch meetings. Mm-hmm. They didn't know yeah. that. Oh yeah, it's, okay. And I'd say from your time in, or like not your time, <laughs> but the time of the Dunn strike to back now, like day. unfortunately, the trade union <laughs> movement has gone backwards a lot Absolutely. in terms of the levels of activism, the understanding yeah. of that kind of thing, the branch meetings. Like most people who are members of unions now, yeah. don't even know that there's branch exactly. meetings or that there should be branch meetings. Exactly. Like it's, when I when I joined the union for the first time when I was like eighteen, I never got contacted by them i didn't know that there was a branch meeting i thought it was just something you got a card for and And then you were like oh i'm in the union and like i come from a family that's like quite militant you know what i mean as karen was saying like my mom's an author she's written about the dinosaur strikers she's written plays about them um and she's always you know she like really funny but when i got arrested at henry street um back in september for occupying the store she didn't know i'd been arrested until connor reddy a friend of mine put up a video. I took, I, f- I had a phone on me when I was in the back of the paddy wagon and I took a video of myself mm-hmm. giving a report in the back of the Garda van. And it's quite funny, like, um, but it was, it was a good video, but my mom didn't know I'd been arrested and Connor just posted it on my Facebook, like tagged me being like, Oh, solidarity with Sive has just been arrested. My mom posted it onto her Facebook page, not her personal one, but her, one that she's an author on, which she has like thousands and thousands of followers. And she goes, solidarity Sive up the workers. And then in brackets, Please text me back. I'm a little bit worried. <laughs> <laughs> she couldn't. She didn't even text me. Like she just put that up. Try to like. Like I didn't know anything about unions. Do you know what I mean? And like I came up in a family where that's yeah. Mm-hmm. You know that's something that like we talk about yeah. and we're involved with. You know. Because I so. I do believe in the trade union movement. I absolutely do believe it mm. because it does make a difference. But I think workers need to to pull it back. They need to be involved in it and, and, and make sure that you don't have the likes of Patricia King and all of that, you know, up there at the top, behaving yeah. like any other Fianna Fáil or Fine Gael politician. I think it's also like if we want the trade union movement, and this is something that workers, I completely agree, Karen, I think you're, you hit the nail on the head. Like it's something that workers need to join unions in their hundreds and in their thousands, and they need to make those changes within the unions and they need to make grassroots changes in unions. And I think when those changes needs to be like how much union leadership gets paid, like, do you know what I mean? Because we have the likes of, um, I think Jerry Light is the head of Mandate and he's on 
really big money and this is not a personal attack on him but like it's just indicative of the issue there mandate is the union that works with some of the poorest workers you know what i mean it's retail it's bars it's like service industry it's all of that right and th- that's like the lowest paid it's predominantly women like you know what i mean it's yep. not a very high paid industry and how can you represent workers you know who are on maybe 25 to 40 grand between that bracket when you're on like double you know what i mean it just it, i think that's something as well that really needs to be discussed and like taken into account because you know socialist tds like paul and stuff they don't take the whole wage because and like gino and breed and stuff and the socialist party they don't take the whole wage because to represent workers you have to have an understanding of how workers live you know what i mean i mean i think that the two things like the struggle to kind of organize the unorganized right and now like the vast majority of workers in this country are unorganized and there's like big new industries mm. you know new workplaces like amazon now is going to be employing five thousand people they're opening new warehouses in ireland you've got facebook the content moderators you've all these new new groups of workers that aren't organized we need to organize those workers um into unions and that is related to the struggle of kind of reclaiming the unions, yeah. of turning them into fighting democratic unions. Because if workers are in them and are active in them and are fighting and pushing, it doesn't mean everything will be perfect, but certainly things will be a lot better. Like Because the leaders of the unions, if, if they're more conservative and they want to focus on doing partnership deals with the boss and so on, well then... They're happy enough if people aren't going to branch meetings that aren't absolutely. passing motions that aren't pushing things because life's mm, easy. Yeah, like, you know, absolutely. They're getting their their payment, and you know, they're like some of the payments are just crazy. I remember back in the day, uh, mm-hmm. John Mitchell was the highest paid union official in Ireland, mm. and his attitude was, "Well, you know, I deserve it." Yeah. So, like, and, that's back forty years ago, Paul. Almost, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> when you see that, and that's starting then, and he would have been seen as a progressive left, yeah. And now you have the progressive rights, yeah. They mm. need to go, and and we as workers need to be in there fighting to stop this carnage yeah. of workers' rights because that's what's happening. Mm. Well, one thing again coming up in the next week is we're going to we're going to publish on Saturday and then move at like what's known as first stage in the doll next Wednesday, a trade union recognition bill um, to provide a legal route to recognition for workers. Like at the moment we have what's known as a, what they call a voluntarist system of industrial relations, which means that you can join a union if you want, but the company doesn't have to do anything with the union. They don't have to talk to them. They don't have to deal with them. Whereas this would say that, okay, if 20% of Amazon workers or 20% of a certain grade of Amazon workers or Facebook workers or whatever join a union, well, then legally the company has to go and and deal with them um, because obviously the rules, the laws have become progressively stacked against workers getting organized. Uh, and it's not an accident. Like you look at Amazon, Amazon was spending $10,000 a day to fight unionization in um, Arizona, I think, in the US yeah. in this plant called Bessemer because they know that if workers get organized, then workers are going to get a bigger share of the amount of wealth that is yeah. produced um, and life things are going to improve from the point of view of workers and they're going to disprove from the point of view of disimprove from the point of view of Jeff Bezos who has doubled his wealth mm. to $200 billion over the course of the in, pandemic. In the first three months of, of 2021, Amazon has the profits from January to March has increased by 6.4 billion. Yeah. yeah. Just mm. for three months. Yeah. 
come here. Um, we were meant to talk about like loads of other news, including uh, including the wildfires and football and Super League. Um, but we're kind of running out of time. But I, but before we finish, I do want to get. We haven't spoken yet about the um, the dramatic events, or we've only kind of touched on them. The dramatic events um, at Henry Street. Uh, what a week and a half ago now? Or? Yeah, yeah, it was last Thursday. Uh, well, not last Thursday. Thursday before last. Yes, so we go basically. Yeah. Um, yeah. So do you want to? You were there, Sive. So um, you weren't, you weren't just there. You were. Um, <laughs> I got arrested. Yeah. Tell us about. <laughs> oh no, um, that was great. I always love getting arrested. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, it was. Um, it was. We had a tip off. So I've been at that picket line for like the last year. Mm-hmm. So Jane gave me a text that day and said, "Listen, we've had a tip off. We need people down for tonight." And I said, "Yeah, what time? I'll be there." Um, and we got about. You know, there was there was loads of workers down. There was a good few supporters down. We were in the loading bay, which is back on Parnell Street. It's behind the Henry Street evidence. Um, And we had cars in there blocking the entrance. And we were sitting there for a few hours and we were like, what's going on? Is there anything going to happen? I was super skeptical. I was I was actually a record. I was going around just talking about it. I was like, it's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. I don't believe it. Mm-hmm. Because we had this joke that anytime someone says it's going to happen, Doesn't... they add two weeks onto the strike. <laughs> so I was like, guys, stop saying it's going to happen. Like, but um, anyway, so I had my I skateboard down there. I live five minutes away from the picket. So I skateboard down there every time I do a shift. So I always do the runarounds to check the front because I can skateboard around really quick. So I skateboarded down Moore Street and um, <laughs> and I saw a giant bunch of guards. There was about 30 guards at the bottom of Moore Street. So obviously I like hop back on my skateboard and skate. Are you, are you a skateboard girl, by the way? I am a skateboard girl. <laughs> That's me there now. But um, I... I, I ran, I skateboarded back really quickly and I was like, lads, oh no. I was like, you guys are right, it's happening. There's security guards down there. So that at that point, Jane took charge and she said, listen, we're going to split into two groups because there was two ways the stock could have gotten out. There was a way through Moore Street. It would have been very difficult for them, but it would have been easier than, the, than where we were holding the picket in um, the loading bay, which we had blocked off. We were about to go around to Moore Street into two groups, half the workers with one, half the workers with the other. Except at that moment, the van swung around onto Parnell Street. They screeched just stop in front of us and we realized they were coming for us here. So we immediately closed the gates, locked them. We stayed inside and we sent out red alerts everywhere. John Whipple, who works for PVP, is a legend and he'd organized like phone trees. There was like a hundred contact details that we had that we were like straight out to getting. Um, and the guards were trying to get us out of there, but we were just like, we can't hear you. We can't hear you. <laughs> so that was good. And there was within an hour or two, there was like a hundred supporters outside as well. And there was like 30 of us inside and the guards, um, they really made, uh, an effort to intimidate the workers. Mm. Do you know what I mean? They made a really concise effort to do that because what they did was they parked all their vans in the middle of the street. There was three guys who were arrested initially. That was, uh, they're all actually mates of mine. Uh, but they were sitting because they were because they were on the island between Parnell Street mm-hmm. and they were standing there with some other supporters and the guards were like, you guys need to get back. And they were like, we're not doing anything. We're just here to support the workers. And because they wouldn't move back, they got arrested. Um, so it was a really cons- like it was a specific effort to try and intimidate workers um, because at that point, then the guards parked between us. So we couldn't even see the supporters. Yeah. So it just felt like we were very isolated with like, you know, loads. There was like 60 guards in front of us. Then that continued, but we kept the spirits up. That was really important. We were singing, we were chanting, we were calling over to the supporters. Jane and Carmel like had me <laughs> singing ABBA, to, <laughs> which was fun, but uh, it was good. But then the guards started reading out the injunction. 
they also managed to get in through Moore Street and come up under the shutter. So they got into the loading bay with us. There was four guards. We all immediately linked together, sat down against the um, the gate to prevent them opening it. They did get through the side gate and they let 30 guards in, at which point they started reading the injunction. We told them we're not moving. There's no way we've been here. Jane was saying we've been here a year. You know, we can't just get up and leave. Um, the guards read out the injunction. And then at that point, when they re- when they when we had said that we weren't moving, they started removing people. They started with Paddy Kelly, who's a friend of mine. He's a 70 year old man. He had actually just gotten his injection like two days before. So that was nice. But uh, they picked him up and they dragged him out. Michael O'Brien of the Socialist Party was pushed out. He took a tumble. Um, you know, I was then there was a 61 year old woman, Fiona, who was linked to me. She was dragged out. There's a really harrowing video on Twitter of her daughter outside screaming she's like that's my mother you bastards like stop touching her and it, it's really like I remember I like cried when I was watching it even though it's like I was I was really upset watching it because I had been linked to her and then I saw the other side of that of Cara being so upset she's thrown on the ground by the guards and the guards use her as a way to push protesters back mm-hmm. because they throw her on the gr- ground in front of the protesters and then they're like get back you're crushing her after they've thrown her onto the ground you know what I mean um, then I was taken out and I was live recording the whole thing. So that stopped for a minute. But what was really bad was they actually grinded open the gate. Then they were looking down at Jane and Carmel and they said to Carmel, like, you guys have to move. They said, no, we're not going. Picked up Carmel. They're very rough with her. They bruised her arm quite badly. She was saying at the press conference next day, like she had, she was crying as she was pulled out. Like I heard it. And uh, then Jane and Jane, they picked her up. They dragged her out. They're carrying her with such force that they pulled her top and her jumper over her head and they broke her bra. So she was exposed from the waist up and they dropped her on the ground. When that happened, I was live recording. Loads of people were live recording and we all moved our cameras away so that Jane wouldn't be exposed like on live video. And Carmel was screaming, crying. She like tried to run to Jane because it's very upsetting to see a very proud woman who's the shop steward, who's led the strike for Mm -hmm. a year, over a year get exposed like that by the guards and there's nothing you can do Richard was there as well he was saying like get off her like let us help her Carmel was screaming crying I saw a guard grab Carmel and throw her back same thing happened to me I tried to run in because like also these are women you've become really good friends with and like that's just that's a violation of someone's you know that is just terrible um and I was pushed back thankfully a woman called Alice grabbed me so I didn't whack my head but um yeah so Jane was eventually able to get her top back on she came out, but like that was really harrowing. And then at that point, we sat down on the roads on either side to block the guard vans from then leaving so the trucks could get in. And it was at that point that I was arrested, which was, you know, not great. But um, uh, it was just, it was just, it was, it was really disheartening to see the fact that the state were there in force mm-hmm. in the, pre- in the, in the, in, Gar- in on Garda Shiafana, um, to remove workers who've been picketing. Michal Martin himself has said and has said the doll that the picket is, you know, vital during even during a level five lockdown. Yeah. While there were packers yeah. and like and workers in behind that shutter, packing up stock, loading it up. Yeah. That's like just not essential work. And yeah. the whole time we it's were saying essential retail stock, like, you know, not, like it's not, it's, it's Devon's not even, wouldn't be allowed to open if it was no, operating like. It's and, completely, it's like 300 euro jeans. Like yeah. that's just not essential for anyone. Do you know what I mean? It's makeup and stuff like that. Um, 
And it's just like we were saying that the whole time we were like, why are you removing us? You know, we're here. This is the picket. There's going to be a ballot soon. Like this is happening. Mm-hmm. Like this is what's happening. And there's workers behind that door and you're not doing anything to them. Yeah, and the guys just, yeah. they were facilitating them. And it was, it was really disheartening. And it was, um, it was, it was funny what you were saying, Karen, they were much more gentle, I'd say with us than they were with um, yourselves. And I think that's because there were so many cameras on them and because because of like like that, like because in Blanchardstown, I was there in Blanchardstown three weeks ago when they first started removing stock and I was picked up and moved and my mom rang me up the next day and she was like, bastards, bastards, all of them. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And she was, but they lifted you like a baby. <laughs> she was like, they were more gentle with you than I was. <laughs> I was like, uh, okay. <laughs> but um, yeah, like that, and that's, and like, obviously they were much less gentle at Henry Street because they were getting pissed off at us. And, you know, but at, at Blanche's Town, there's less of us there and they were a lot more gentle because they know it's in their interest to not like do anything that damages those women because like people are behind that strike. The public are behind that strike. It's there's just, there's no one who would look at that strike and go, mm-hmm. ah, no, you know what I mean? It's not contentious. Um, uh, yeah. So that was, that's kind of what happened there. And then obviously the next night in Tralee, mm-hmm. um, the same thing happened where trucks came down and there's some really powerful photographs of like four or five women workers lying down on the road with the guards standing over them, mm-hmm. obviously about to move them. And so that's kind of where it's at. And it's, it's, it's really difficult because it's been obviously what's happening. Why the reason it's happening now is because the up in the, in the north in Belfast, the Debenham shop is going to be opening there on the 30th for a massive closing down yeah. sale and flashing lights. Yeah. And um, so it's obvious that the stock is being moved from north. the south up to the north to be sold off. So I would say if anyone's in, if anyone's listening to this and they're in Belfast, get organized, do a picket up there. Do you know what I mean? Because that's where it's going. Mm-hmm. Come here. Um, that is a very graphic description of what was yeah. pretty dramatic um, and pretty horrendous um, behaviour by the Gardaí, like you're you're mm. saying. Um, we better leave it there because we can't uh, record the podcast all day because, well, we could talk forever. And maybe some people pints. would listen. Give us a few pints and we can keep going. <laughs> um, but I, I think it's actually very appropriate that, like, we focused for May Day, you know, going from uh, Dunn's to Debenhams and uh, really heroic struggles. Um, majority so women workers. Majority as well. women workers leading the way, um, which yeah. is pretty, pretty usual. <laughs> um, so really, thanks a million, um, Karen, um, and fair play for everything you've done, and you're and you're campaigning now with the Debenhams workers as well because uh, um, this is still your day. It's not. It wasn't your day forty years ago. It's forty <laughs> years of struggle. It's all our. It's all our <laughs> days. Of- and it will continue to be all our days. Um, so. And thanks a million, Sive. No worries. And, and thanks to your mother for writing that. <laughs> shout out here, Garrity. Yeah. <laughs> I just texted her. I'm going to give her a buzz. I'm going to give her a buzz after this. That's so funny. Because I, I, I kind of, I was going to text her before, but I was like, I kind of just forgot about it. And then when I was on, I was like, my mom definitely knows you. She's, 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 she's so obsessed with those strikers. She still thinks they're on strike. She doesn't go into done. <laughs> so yeah, she's a big fan. Mad. She's a big and thanks, a, thanks a million, Dave, okay, as well. Thanks, Paul. Thank you, Dave. Don't, don't feel underappreciated there. Okay, you're doing good work, too. Best of luck with your team tomorrow. Yeah. God love you. We have to beat Forest, hope Derby lose, and then we play Derby on the last day of the season and the winner stays up. I'm I'm, I'm supporting Forest all the way. That can, that can, be, the, yeah. that can be the Patreon yeah. special. Listen, listen to me watching it. Um, okay, so 
before before this uh, degenerates further into boring football talk, um, I'll thank everyone to for all the supporters of the podcast on Patreon for making this possible, and for all those who support the podcast on Facebook, Twitter, uh, and by just telling their friends about it. And I encourage you all to please keep spreading the word. Thanks a million, everyone. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you. See you. Thanks, guys. Take care. Bye.